the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to Reaching Your Heart. If this is your first time with us, we appreciate you stopping by. I'll be back at the close of our message with some information on this ministry that may help you a little bit more understand what we're all about here. The name of this broadcast is The Marriage of the Lamb. It's available online in its entirety should you miss any portion of this message here today at reachingyourheart.com. That's reachingyourheart.com. Once again, please join me at the close of our message today for some very important information that I'll pass along at that time. Here now is our pastor teacher, Michael Oxentenko, with The Marriage of the Lamb. Dear Father God, we ask today for Jesus in every aspect of the service. Thank you for being here. In Jesus' name, amen. Seventeen years ago, his wife Janet died suddenly of a heart attack. I mean, it was a tragic thing for him to have it happen. He loved her and boom, just like that, she was gone. Removed from his life, dramatically, tragically, it was over. Her death left a massive black hole in his heart and life. He loved his wife. He had married her because he loved her. This Valentine's Day, I had the choice of trying to figure out a way to tell Diana I loved her. You ever go to the card rack and you look for the Valentine's cards that are just right and you slave over it because you don't have a clue what to get? I found this real lovely little card that said, I love you, you're a great wife, and all that. I put it back on the rack because right beside it was a two-foot by two-foot big card that said it more simply. And I opened it up, didn't have a whole lot to say inside, but it was a big card. And I thought, let me change strategy. Instead of trying to say I love you with a little card like I've done every year, let me get a big card and I'll write some stuff in it. And I said, I love you and your looks. That's all I said. Your husband. I hope it worked. I think it did. There are times in which we have to say, I love you in a big way. Am I right or wrong? To say I love you in little ways is important, but there are times when you got to think big. Now, David Howe had lost his wife. She had passed from the scene, and he was trying to find a concrete way to look back and forward and to let the whole world know that he loved the wife that he lost. So what did he do? Well, he's 70 years old now. His friends and family know how much he loved his wife because an airplane has flown overhead looking down upon the field that he dedicated to his wife. Mr. Howes owns a 112-acre farm, and he dedicated a portion of it to his wife's memory. He marked out a six-acre portion of the field in the form of a heart, and he put small hedges around the heart, and he planted the rest with small oaks. It took time for his love dream to grow. The tip of the heart points toward the house of her childhood home. It points home when he is all alone and he wants to remember the wife he lost. He goes with a chair to the middle of that field. He puts it in the middle of this field, which is surrounded by oaks. And he finds her in his memory in the center of a heart that points home. Friend, in the Bible, Jesus gave his life for his church. 
And he is not content until he finds his people in the middle of the heart that points home. David Howe, in the middle of that field, only from the sky can you see the significance. He is in the middle of the heart that points home. Friend, when God brought Jesus to this earth, when Jesus was given, when he was poured out as God's love gift to the human race, God placed him in the center of his heart of concern. And the heart of Christ points home for every human being. In the Bible, Jesus has returned to his father's house to be married to his bride in the judgment. And when the judgment is finished, and we are living today in the great antitypical day of atonement, the book of Revelation calls it the judgment hour of earth's history. We are living in the time when Jesus Christ, our great high priest, is standing in the presence of God. And he is receiving his kingdom in the judgment, which is the marriage of the Lamb. And when he receives his kingdom, he will return to bring his bride to his father's house. Matthew 22, 1, we have a parable which captures much of this reality for us in prophetic terms. Matthew 22, verse 1, And again Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a marriage feast for his son. And he sent his servants to call those who were invited to the marriage feast, but they would not come. And he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, Behold, I have made ready my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves are killed, and everything is ready. Come to the marriage feast. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a marriage feast for his son. I mean, here we have the sense, the entire focus here is upon God the Father and His Son Jesus Christ. The kingdom of heaven really is about the King and His Son. Others are invited, but the focus is on the center of the kingdom. In Daniel 2, we have a prophetic context for this parable. The prophet Daniel describes the four great world empires in Nebuchadnezzar's dream of a massive metallic man. He interprets the dream for the king. Gold represents the kingdom of Babylon. He then sees silver in the image representing the next world empire of Medo-Persia. Brass follows, which is the kingdom of Greece. And then the great iron monarchy of Rome, the legs of iron. And finally, modern Europe is represented as ten toes of iron mixed with miry clay. Strong nations and weak nations put together at the end in a mix that cannot hold together, waiting for the final kingdom And the final kingdom is the kingdom of God. It follows the fourth kingdom. It follows the divided Europe of the Middle Ages. It is Christ's kingdom. It is the kingdom that God the Father will give to His Son, Jesus Christ. The fifth kingdom is the kingdom of heaven, and Jesus will rule. Daniel 2.44, here it is. And in the days of those kings, which means in the days of modern Europe... The God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. What that means is that something of immense importance is happening in heaven. As we come to the end of world history, heaven is stirring. Something is transpiring in a heavenly judgment. It says, A kingdom which shall never be destroyed will be set up, nor shall its sovereignty be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. And it shall stand forever. It will not be replaced. Verse 45. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be hereafter. 
And finally, it says the dream is certain and its interpretation sure. You can bank on this fifth kingdom that's coming. It's going to come. It's going to stay. It's never going to pass away. The Aramaic word for stone is a word play for the Hebrew word sun. The word eben, stone, is etymologically related or at least homophonous in part to the word ben, sun. And eben ben, a stone, sun, word play is here. The stone and the sun, you can't separate that in the ancient language. They're so much glued together in how they sound and what they mean. That's why Peter said, come to him, that living stone. He meant come to him, the living son of God. And so we find this metaphor active and alive here. The Aramaic word would indicate the son of God is the stone kingdom. The mountain represents the kingdom of God in heaven. The stone is the son of God and he is the source of the new kingdom. So the last great world empire is the kingdom of heaven. It will break in pieces all other kingdoms. I mean, there are times in life we feel like the earth rules pretty heavy and hard. I mean, you feel the weight of taxes, don't you? Imagine a world where there's no taxation, where every heart gives to God because it's free. And love that is extended to our neighbor is extended because we love our neighbor. And a world with grace in it that is full and never, ever tiring. We go on and on in a world of freedom and love. That's what this kingdom is about. In Daniel 7, the kingdom of heaven is given to the Son of Man. Just like Daniel 2, there are four great world empires. The parallel between Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 is profound and clear. The lion, like the head of gold, represents Babylon. The bear with two sides, like the silver, represents the kingdom of Medo-Persia. The bear has one side higher than the other, Persia, replaces the Median Empire in its sequence here. The four-headed leopard is Greece that was divided into the four parts of the Greek world after the death of Alexander the Great, Cassander, Lysimachus, Seleucius, and Ptolemy, the divided Greek world. The fourth kingdom is a beast with great iron teeth, the great iron monarchy of Rome it represents. It has bronze claws, which again points to Greece. It was the Greco-Roman Empire, the language, culture, religion of Greece, the political might of Rome, bronze and iron, merging together in this fourth beast. The fourth kingdom is Rome. And out of Rome grows ten horns like the ten toes on the image of Daniel 2. And the ten horns are identified in Daniel 7.24 as ten kings that ruled during the Middle Ages after the transition from the United Roman Empire to the divided Europe of the Middle Ages. And the ten horns are followed in sequence early in the Middle Ages by a little horn that usurps the dominion of Jesus Christ. A kingdom that arises that looks like it's Christian but it's not that directly attacks the law of God in Daniel 7.25, that thinks to change times and law, that supplants the very ministry of Jesus in world history. Christ had a ministry of three and a half years. This little horn power in Daniel 7.25 will think to change times and law. And the saints will be given into his hand for a time, two times, and half a time, which is three and a half prophetic years. And so it retraces the footsteps of Jesus. It's a horn that looks like a man, but it's not the Son of Man. It counterfeits the ministry of Jesus by attacking His law and more specifically by replicating His very period of ministry prophetically. But instead of building up the church, Daniel is very clear in Daniel 7.25, it leads the church into captivity. The little horn is that church-state kingdom of the Middle Ages 
They claimed to forgive sins and hold the keys of the kingdom in its hands. It held nothing in its hands because it had forsaken the word of God and the person of Jesus Christ. Daniel describes this kingdom as an imposter. And the judgment sits after 1260 years of persecution, which is a prophetic time, times, and dividing of times. Three and a half prophetic years, which is 42 months, 42 times 30, 1260 days, 1260 literal years utilizing the year for day principle. And in the 18th century, at the end of the Middle Ages, God brings that power down. We leave the old era of church state oppression and we come into the new world, the new era of the modern nation state of a divided world that seeks the unity of an everlasting kingdom. We're living in a time when the transnationalists and the globalists of our world are trying to figure out how to retool Western civilization so they can effectively create an order that will last the next thousand years. There is a feeling that the great nation states of the past, like the United States, like Germany, Great Britain, cannot produce the glue to keep the world together. And so we are speaking now more openly of international law, of international economic principles, of great nations with power giving in to a degree to where we don't have this oppressiveness and the political upheaval that creates another world war. And friend, they cannot create a mix like this. Man cannot institute an order that will bring peace on earth. The fifth kingdom in the book of Daniel is God's kingdom. The little horn, as I said, is that church-state kingdom of the Middle Ages that tried to put it all together but failed. Now, Daniel 7.26, the Bible says the court shall sit in judgment. In the context, the judgment is in heaven. It goes on to say, and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed, destroyed to the end. We know that the dominion of this power was removed in the early part of the 18th century by an act of God that essentially ended the old order and brought us into the modern era. The French Revolution is the transition from the old era to the new. Verse 27, And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to who? What does the text say? Shall be given to the saints the Most High. Friend, the future is a gift. You cannot attain what you can receive by faith. You cannot achieve what you can receive through Jesus. God will give it to those who are loyal to Him and to His Son. The Bible is absolutely clear that the kingdom of heaven will be given to the saints of the Most High. But in the parable, in Matthew 22, 1, Jesus plainly states that the kingdom of heaven is like a marriage feast that a king gave for his son. The kingdom feast, friend, is not your feast or my feast. The feast is God's feast for His Son. The focus of the future is the focus on Jesus. It's not about our church. It's not about our personal accomplishments. It's not about us somehow proving to the universe that we can vindicate God. We can't. The future is about Christ, the great champion of God's will, who will Himself vindicate His character, who has done so already at the cross of Calvary. Look at Daniel 7, 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, right into the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary. God the Father sitting on that chariot throne, which is described in 1 Chronicles twenty-eight eighteen as the Ark of the Covenant, into the most holy place. He was presented before him, verse 13. 
And what happens inside this place where sin started? What happens in the place where we have the constitution of the universe, the law of God, inside the Ark of the Covenant that Revelation eleven nineteen says is in heaven? What happens there? Because God is there. Jesus is here at the end of the Middle Ages in this heavenly judgment. Verse 14. To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. Now, I'd like to pause right there. Who gets the kingdom? Who gets it here in the context? God gives it to Jesus. To him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. God had been waiting for centuries to do this for his son. After the cross, after the counterfeit of the Middle Ages, Christ comes into the most holy place and God the Father gives the kingdom, the future, the fifth world empire that will never end because it's the kingdom of heaven. He gives it to his son, Jesus. And then it says in verse 14, his dominion, meaning the son's dominion, is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Friend, if you have Jesus, you have the future. If you have Jesus, you have life. If you have Jesus, the problems of life will be replaced by something that's solid and firm. In a pre-advent heavenly judgment in the book of Daniel, chapter 7, just before Jesus returns, I mean, people, this blows my mind. I'm going to talk frankly with you. I can't fathom how people can say there is no pre-advent judgment in heaven before Jesus returns when it's plainly stated in the Bible that there is. I mean, Daniel 7 is just laying it out. Christ has not yet come in Daniel 7. He's in heaven receiving his kingdom from his Father. Then he returns. Friend, Christ is not passive in heaven on our behalf. Christ is active at the end of time. He is wrapping up world events and he is receiving from his Father that which will last forever and ever and ever. Now, if Christ is doing that for us in heaven, what should we be doing for him here? What should be our moral response to the one who is preparing for us such a glorious future? Shouldn't we be actively sharing our faith with others? Right? Shouldn't we be committed financially to the cause of God? Yeah. Shouldn't we be invested in our spare time, our prayer life, our study of the Word of God, that we are worthy of this holy benefit that we are receiving? Absolutely. And so this is the picture we have here, which is really the context of the parable that we are looking at in Matthew 22. This is the marriage of the Lamb to His bride. In ancient times, a marriage was much different than what we have today. I mean, if you get married today, the bride is walked up by her father to the altar The groom meets her there, they say vows, and then they're married, right? Isn't that how it works in our culture, yes or no? It is, okay. That's not how it worked in ancient culture. A marriage worked like this. A groom would leave his bride at home, her home. Leave her there. Just biting her fingernails, waiting for him to return. He would then go to his father's house. And in his father's house, he would be married to his bride without her being there. Then he would return once the marriage was finished and come and receive his bride. And then he would take her in triumphal public procession back to his father's house for the marriage supper with his bride. And what we have here in this ancient marriage form is the entire history of salvation from the cross to the end of time. 
Christ went to his father's house to prepare a place for us, it says in John 14. That means he went to become married to his bride in the judgment that precedes the second coming. And once he has received his kingdom from his father, he's been married to the future city that will be the focus of a world kingdom. He then returns to resurrect his saints, to bring his people who are alive up to him. And then in triumphal procession in the second coming, he leaves this planet as a dead cinder in space for a thousand years. He journeys to his father's house and in his father's house is the marriage supper of the lamb in heaven. And the book of Revelation teaches he returns at the end of the thousand years to make a house for his bride, so to speak. He destroys this planet with fire. He recreates it. New heavens, new earth that never passes away. So if you can remember how a marriage works in the ancient world, you can be absolutely straight on how prophecy works in Jesus' parables and in the book of Daniel and Revelation. Jesus tells us plainly that Jesus receives his kingdom in heaven and then he returns. Let's look at the verse, Luke 19, 12. Christ said, therefore, a nobleman went where in the verse? Into a far country to do what? To receive a kingdom and then return. Why did Christ go to heaven according to this parable? He went to heaven to receive his kingdom from his father, which is what we see happening in Daniel 7. And once he has received that kingdom in that pre-advent heavenly judgment, he then returns to receive his bride, which is implied in this as well. So he went to heaven for a good reason. The judgment is that reason. Well, some people say, well, why do we need a judgment if Jesus died for me at the cross? Has anyone ever asked that question to you? Why do we need a judgment if Jesus died for you at the cross? Well, the Bible says we do. Hebrews 9 says it is appointed for every man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. Now, how many of you would like to stand before God representing yourself in the judgment day? How many of you here? I don't. The beauty of this is profound for the believer, for the person that will be claimed by Christ, the person who has confessed their faith in Christ. He comes before the Ancient of Days in Daniel 7. At the end of the great world empires, just before the second coming, he comes into the most holy place of heaven's sanctuary where sin began, where Lucifer challenged the law of God, where God himself passed judgment on Lucifer and the angels that were banished from heaven. He comes as the representative of the human race with wounds in his hands and his feet. He comes in the presence of God and is presented before him. And to him was given a kingdom. God has in Christ chosen one man to represent every believer in that judgment. It is a proxy judgment. And just as Christ took your place at the cross of Calvary, friend, he longs for you to cling to him as Savior. And so he can fully take your place before God in the great judgment at the end of time. Why? Because he will ask for you by name based on his victory at the cross. I like this teaching because it conforms perfectly with the gospel. This notion that there is no judgment after death violates the Bible's clear teaching. And this notion that we do not need what the Bible describes here as an investigative pre-advent judgment removes Christ as our substitute in the judgment. We desperately need what Daniel 7 describes, one like the Son of Man who comes before God in our behalf. And so this judgment is nothing less than the outworking of the everlasting gospel. 
Christ called this the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because it comes from heaven to here. It's His kingdom. He called Himself the Son of Man because He's the hero in the great judgment. Friend, when Jesus receives the kingdom, He will be married to His people forever. How does Christ marry His kingdom in the heavenly judgment? One person at a time. One name at a time before the Father and the holy angels. Look at Revelation 3, verse 5. This is an amazing verse. I mean, there are some churches that teach that we are predestined to be saved. The entire Calvinist stream of theology has bought into that idea. This one passage makes that an impossible view. You are saved if you remain faithful to Christ and you cling to Him by faith. Without Christ, there is no salvation. So you can't gimmick your way into eternal life. Christ is speaking. The one who conquers shall be clad thus in white garments... And I will do what? What does he say? I will not blot his name out of the book of life. What it means is this. It's possible in that judgment, if you've been a believer and you've acted like it doesn't matter, your name can be removed from the book of life. But that's not the focus here. He said, if you stick with me, if you allow me to be what I was at the beginning of your faith journey, your Savior to the end, he says, I will not blot your name out of the book of life. He goes on to the positive. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Thanks for tuning in to Reaching Your Heart. That will conclude the first portion of The Marriage of the Lamb. You can go online to reachingyourheart.com to listen to the entire message without interruption. Just look for the broadcast schedule there on the main page. That same website is also available for you to help us out with a financial contribution. We so appreciate those. They help us to continue to bring you this broadcast here on this station and many other stations. Again, that's reachingyourheart.com. You'll find an opportunity there for you to donate online. To send you a contribution through the mail, the address here is Reaching Hearts International, 6100 Brooklyn Bridge Road, Laurel, Maryland, 20707. That's 6100 Brooklyn Bridge Road, Laurel, Maryland, 20707. That is also the address for the worship service this Saturday at 11 o'clock. If you're in the area, please stop by. We'd love to have you as our guest. And thanks for listening. As always, we pray God is reaching your heart. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.